Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of A Rock and a Hard Place. This is Thomas L., your host for today's episode. This week I'm joined by my dear friend and mentor, Dr. Alex Spear, former longtime executive director of the Mineralogical Society of America. Dr. Spear is a current MSA fellow and the secretary treasurer of the Geological Society of America's Mineralogy, Geochemistry, Petrology, and Volcanology Division. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Spear. Glad to have you here today. Thank you for inviting me. Our team would like to note that this conversation was recorded before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We hope to speak to Dr. Spear about how the current situation will impact global mineral security and global supply chains at a later date. I thought it was really important for us to have this conversation on this podcast because merging these different worlds together, where it's whether it's mineralogy, mining engineering, security, I think is the best way for us to tackle these multifaceted, no pun intended here, uh, issues in society that we're going to be facing for the future. So I'd like to start our conversation with how you got involved in the field of mineralogy and that eventual path that led you to your career at MSA. Well, growing up, I lived next to a cornfield. And after each rain, I would walk the rows looking for Indian Ed arrowheads. But there were also smoky quartz crystals. And in the eighth grade science class, we had to make a presentation about a mineral. So I chose quartz. And I first learned more about quartz as a mineral from the small paperback, Golden Nature Guide to Rocks and Minerals. I had thought about becoming an archaeologist, but my father suggested that geology is better because it's, it seemed related to archaeology to him, but also there appeared to be more opportunities and money to be made in geology than in archaeology. <laughs> so off to college and graduate school in geology um, in a sequence of jobs and research and teaching. But as you mentioned, there were several years working in industry, manufacturing electrical mechanical devices, uh, focused mostly on the manufacturing process, but often there were the more intriguing need for failure analysis, which is essentially trying to figure out how a part came to fail based on what is there now, sort of like determining Earth's history by looking at the rocks. But I think it's important that your previous work probably informed what you've done at the MSA in that long career. So could you briefly tell our audience about the mission and objective of the Mineralogical Society of America and its role in academia across the United States? The Mineralogical Society of America, or MSA, is a global professional society now in its 103rd year, with a membership of about 2,000 individuals in nearly 70 countries. Most members teach or do research in universities, but others work in research labs or in industry or for geological surveys. There are also a few members from the general public, that is mineral collectors, and about 15% of the members are students. And I know that, you know, from, from my perspective, you know, being involved with MSA has been great because I get to have that connection with so many professors from across the United States that are interested in a multifaceted approach of these different issues. Um, you know, we just had the talk the other day with uh, Shauna Morrison from Carnegie about the mineralogy of Mars, and we brought in people from all over the place. And having MSA allows all these scientists to come into the room and have these discussions. So I think it's really critical to bring people together, but also, as you said, with the journal, have a platform for people to be able to share that mineralogy research. And I know as a student in geology, and I'm sure any students that are listening to this podcast, uh, the journal itself is a legacy uh, with many students. And seeing that yellow cover or that white cover in your uh, geology classrooms is definitely something that many students know about. So MSA has a huge impact, especially as a student, uh, from my perspective. So 
one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on uh, this podcast is because, you know, when we think about, you know, mineralogy, we don't normally always think about security. Uh, and so I'd like to talk about how mineralogy as a science impacts this idea of critical mineral security issues. Um, and so could you discuss the importance of mineralogy itself as a field of science? Um, because again, most people think of metallurgy or mining engineering and not necessarily mineralogy. So what's the, what's the role of mineralogy in this security question? Well, <clears throat> if you need a critical material, you need to know what mineral or mineral it occurs. You need to know where those minerals can be found. You also have to know how you can get the minerals out of the ground and also how you can get those particular minerals out of the enclosing rocks and then make it concentrate of some way. And also finally, how you can extract the material from the mineral itself. So for all that, you need to be able to recognize minerals. You need to know their geological and geographical occurrence and you need to know their physical and chemical properties. The alternative is just to go out and wander around and hope you find what you need, so it doesn't work too well. I would mention as a side note that the discussion tends to focus on the importance of what critical minerals contain, that is their chemical composition. However, a mineral can be, be important because of its physical properties and inspire the manufacture of comparably useful man-made materials. The physical properties of quartz make it important for both keeping time and controlling radio frequencies. Uh, it's the reason you have a cell phone that works, and also for most people they think it's just a trade name, but the reason you have a quartz watch. Uh, the other perhaps mineral that people don't think about is perovskite, a rather rare mineral. But it showed the way to, to high-performance and low-cost solar cells. So in both those cases, it really is not the composition of the quartz of perovskite that was important. It was their physical properties that inspired um, uh, economic or development. I think people often forget, you know, when we talk about this all the time, you and I, when we have our conversations, that people don't always understand what goes into making their devices, whether it's a cell phone, whether it's the computer that allows them to have these virtual conversations in COVID. I mean, it's quite fascinating that minerals in many ways are part of our daily life in so many different forms, but we don't normally think about them. And, you know, it's kind of that first step in this, in this larger conversation. So I'd like to talk about how ore deposits you know, are diverse and we can't just classify or treat all deposits the same way. We can use lithium here as an example. Um, so how do differences in ore deposit mineralogy impact the critical mineral supply chain at the processing and manufacturing level? And why should critical mineral observers like security professionals or industry professionals be thinking about this issue of looking at ore deposits differently? Yeah, I think the answer to your question is, is best understood using an example, and lithium, I thought, was perhaps a, a good one. Um, lithium occurs in three different types of deposits. It occurs in hard rock deposits, uh, things called pegmatites, which are akin to granites, <clears throat> in brine lake deposits, something called salars, that contain lithium in solution, and lithium-rich sediments, uh, certain clays, since, like hectorite, the clay, now, to date, all the lithium produced has originated from the hard rock and brine deposits, so those are the ones I'll talk about. 
But the recovery of lithium from these two different occurrences is profoundly different. In hard rock ores, the most common lithium mineral is spodumene. Um, and it involves hard rock mining of spodumene involves quarrying, crushing the rock, separating the spodumene from the other minerals, all this known as a process known as benefication. But once you have your spodumene concentrate, it's roasted in rotary kilns at about 1,000 degrees centigrade. What this does is this causes the unit cell expansion of the original spodumene from something called alpha spodumene to beta spodumene, a little bit of mineralogy and crystallography there. Turns out alpha spodumene is insoluble in acids, whereas the expanded beta spodumene can be dissolved in hot sulfuric acid. So, after roasting the spodumene, or expanding it from alpha to beta spodumene, the material is cold, mixed with sulfuric acid, but then it's heated up again to about 200 degrees centigrade. During this process, or during this time, you form lithium sulfate from the beta spodumene. So, it turns out beta, or lithium sulfate is soluble in water, so once you've cooled down your heat-treated spodumene mass, you can add water and dissolve out the lithium sulfate. So then you can extract the lithium sulfate solution, evaporate the water, and you end up with lithium sulfate powder. So that is the commercial starting point, actually, of most lithium compounds, such as what's needed to make your lithium battery in your cell phone. You mentioned that lithium can be extracted from brines. How does this process compare to hard rock mining? Now, extracting lithium from brines is quite different. Here, salt-rich waters are pumped to the surface, and the water of the brine is allowed to evaporate by solar energy. And as it increasingly evaporates more and more, it's moved from a succession of solar evaporating ponds one to another over a year to a year and a half. And as you evaporate the water, of course, the brines become much more uh, concentrated in terms of the salts. Now, in this process, the potassium and sodium are often harvested first from the earlier ponds. And so that leaves the later ponds with increasingly higher concentrations of magnesium in calcium and boron as well as lithium. The less soluble salts, uh, less soluble lithium can be precipitated and filtered out. But at some point, the lithium carbonate in the evaporation ponds reaches some optimum value. And what do you add is sodium carbonate, and it precipitates out lithium carbonate. And then you can filter out the lithium carbonate and dry it. So this is the the lithium carbonate is a sort of a stable white powder and can be converted into industrial salts and chemicals. So that is the commercial product of how lithium is sold from a brine. Are there any commercial differences to using one method or the other? The bottom line is it's cheaper to produce lithium from brine lake deposits than hard rock deposits. So as a result, the impact of difference or deposit mineralogies on the supply of something like lithium is one of economics. So, until recently, because lithium is cheaper to produce um, lithium from brine lake deposits, most of the lithium produced did come from the brines. But as demand for lithium peaked or spiked over the past several years, and the prices for the lithium carbonate increased, 
Lithium production from hard rock deposits also increased. So a lot of the shutdown mines actually were restarted again. So that by 2020, you had half of lithium produced from hard rock deposits and half produced from brines. Of course, those being produced from hard rocks were less profitable than those from bonds, but it was enough to get by. For more of a local situation, there was a lithium mine in North Carolina, a lithium mine near Bessemer City, North Carolina. It had closed because it just could not economically compete. But now lith Piedmont Lithium is planning to reopen the mine, hoping for production of maybe 23,000 tons of uh, lithium a year. But if you have your lithium brines, you not only need a place where the brine occurs, but you also need a dry place and a place where the sun shines much of the year. Also, the lithium extraction requires lots of water. So you're going to have to obtain a lot of water some way. The impact of differences in ore mineralogy is one of economics. And if you're wanting to encourage <clears throat> or increase the reliability of the supply of a particular mineral, you're going to have to address that cost difference. And you're going to have to think about, well, what's going to be better to encourage the increased supply? Are you going to have an operational subsidy? Are you going to have tax credits? Are you going to have um, make, maybe make long-term fixed purchase contracts? Or are you going to have trade productions? And in some regards, for, because most of these are um, sort of econ or environmentally unfriendly, are you going to relax those environmental sort of requirements as well? So that's why the actual mineralogy of deposit is important. It's just not a one-size-fits-all situation. That's all for part one of our discussion with Dr. Alex Spear. Join us next time when we'll be talking about the U.S.-China competition for mineral resources and why minerals matter so much in modern society.